Welcome back to another episode of the Investigate podcast and it's your host Arjun Paliwal, Head of Research at Investigate Buyers Agency. And today's episode, I'm with John Fung, my good friend from Domain, Chief Revenue Officer there and we go into unpacking the housing forecast report for Domain's new year forecast ahead. So it's got some interesting takes but one thing that's clear is that there is a recovery in play in some markets as well as a growth continuation of some of our more smaller markets. And so what this shows is that Domain truly feels that the housing year ahead will be very different to the housing year that we've just seen. Now, the key culprit that's at play is the word supply. So keep an eye out on that over the coming quarters because that's going to be the difference maker for how strong these growth forecasts ends up being or how weak it ends up being. And that's a core part. Now, I know so many other factors exist in housing, but supply seems to be the key theme coming up in this report, as well as many other areas. Now, we've seen a pause in the interest rates recently as well in the month of July. So I feel like that may give a little bit of a confidence, but confidence can work in two directions. One direction is the confidence of going out there and making decisions with your money. But the other direction is confidence of potentially listing your home now too, as you feel a little bit more return back to the market. Anyway, we'll unpack this more in our discussion with John Fung today, Chief Revenue Officer in Domain, and go through some of the findings that he's got to share that's been prepared by the Domain research team with regards to Australia's housing forecast for some of our major cities. Let's tune in. John, back again, my friend, not just the property nerds, but now it's the Investigate podcast. Great to be back, Arjun. Thanks for having me on the show. No, appreciate it, mate. And I'm obviously very excited about the recent report released on Domain's forecast for the financial year 23-24. That's right. And there's a lot going on in terms of if we just reflect back to last year versus this year, the, the forecasts and or the outcomes many would be expecting are going to be very, very different. And I think it's fair to say a lot of the interest rate rises that we've seen are probably behind us, not saying we're at the end of it, but the large majority of it behind us. And there seems to be a renewed sort of opticism in the market in terms of what people are thinking. So I guess if we just start very high level on this forecast report, what are some of the key takeaways that you're noticing in this forecast in a more positive tune for Australia's real estate market this next 12 months? Yeah, I think it's a real mixed story. And as you say, Arjun, it is very different to where we thought we'd be six months ago, 12 months ago. And the key headline is this. Typically, when interest rates go up, house prices go down. For every 1% increase in mortgage rates, typically a house price will go down in Australia by 1.34%. So you would expect, now that uh, interest rates have gone up by 4%, that you're talking about like a, you know, a 6% decrease in price. And that's what we had seen up until a few months ago. What this forecast is, report is saying is, just, you know, on top of what has turned around the last few months of house prices, particularly in Sydney, going up, we should expect that to happen. Sydney might go up by 6 to 9% over the next 12 months, which is totally counterintuitive for what you would expect in considering we expect interest rates to stay at their current levels. And I would say that's both good and bad news. It is good if you are a house owner, because what that means is, you know, you're, you're going to have an increase in the, the value of your home. The original forecast that other folks made of like, oh, well, it's doom and gloom, market might be down 20%. That is unlikely to pass in the current conditions. But the bad news is uh, we're going to continue to have issues with the supply 
In fact, I think a lot of the reason why this forecast is up in terms of house prices is because supply remains low, and that is trumping the interest rate effect right now. Yeah, it's such a good point on the comment of supply. And uh, I often talk about the supply doesn't lie. That's been my sort of uh, tagline, right? <laughs> it's, the most, that. awesome. it's the most honest metric out because, you know, if we have a, a good old barbecue or fireside chat, I think that's the, that's the new thing <laughs> with how cold it's been of late. It's more fires rather than the barbecue. But if we have a good little fireside chat and we're chatting about, hey, this exciting new demand piece, whether it's people movement, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's the cost of money, there's so much difference in outcome and speculation that can occur in either direction for each of these things. But when it comes to supply, a house is either for sale or it isn't. Uh-huh. A house is either being constructed or it isn't. And a house is either for rent or it isn't. So such a good pickup by you and the team there when it comes to supply really trumping this next sort of 12-month analysis. And I guess, John, on that note, Sydney's been a forefront in this forecast of performance. Yeah. But I guess when we look at Sydney, with the common buyer thinking, hey, the prices are just quite high here. How's the best way we can maybe explain this to someone going, look, the whole thing doesn't just revolve on the the cost of Sydney. There's so many elements here where some people don't have debt. Some people have a lot for sale, not a lot of construction. Could we maybe explain this dynamic to someone who might be thinking, how are people able to still buy and see these prices (laughs) appreciate? So I think there's two comments I'd make there. First of all, it is probably unhelpful, and I think actually your team do a really good job of breaking this down. It's unhelpful to think about Australia as a monolith. Australia is the combination of 10, 20 different micro markets. You've got the different capital cities. You've got the regionals versus the capitals. And each of these are going through their own cycle. I mean, if you think of like what was happening 12 months ago, Sydney and Melbourne, I guess, led into led the, the capitals, led Australia into the downturn. You know, Queensland was you know, six months behind. But even as, as we come out of it, we see different things where Sydney is rebounding strongly and Adelaide continues its plateaui nature and be nice and flat. And the regionals go through their own curve, their own tree change boom, you know, the last 18, 24 months. And now we are forecasting a more muted price increase, but a price increase nonetheless. So that's the first thing I'd say, as you guys do uh, at Investigate so well, break it up into micro markets. Every locale is different. As we said, supply doesn't lie. Demand shows your hand. Uh, whatever the phrase is, each of, these dim- each of these dimensions are different in, in the particular locale. So I could just talk about Sydney a little, uh, if that's helpful. Yeah, it'd be good to talk about Sydney because on that Sydney specific, I think one thing that many people don't realize perhaps in the isolated one-year trends is also that I like to use the words recovery sometimes instead of growth. And that's another, <laughs> another word, right? Because the forecast is growth, but we also have to remember it's recovering some of the losses made up from last year. And that's I think right. that's an important separation to make too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is it is a recovery in the sense that houses are not yet back at their highest price. Though we are forecasting in Sydney, they will be by the end of the next 12 months. But the other thing is like, not only is this, a re- you could look at this recovery from the high, you could also look at this incredible growth. I mean, some of these houses in Sydney are 30, 40% more than before COVID. So you've had a bit of a roller coaster, but it's been insane growth the past three years and will have recovered, or we forecast will recover to its highest levels within 12 months. Just and to talk about, oh, sorry, Arjun. Yeah, when it comes to Sydney, I think uh, another yeah. thing that many people sometimes, I guess, don't take into consideration is just how many micro areas of Sydney there are. And totally. that's one thing you pointed out really well, because sometimes that median price can scare us and thinking, hey, it's 1.2 or 1.3 or going to be in this direction. But then if you go to the far west and southwest of Sydney, a lot of suburbs still have sub 1 million price points available yeah. in some pockets 
or just a little bit over and, and obviously play a part in bringing that median lower, being under the median. And so I think that's another key part as well, just to highlight on that Sydney cycle. Yeah, I mean, Sydney itself is not a monolith, as you say. There's many different micro markets within Sydney. You know, 1.6 million, great, is the, is the average or will be the average. You know, it's so different. And that doesn't mean that cheaper houses and cheaper apartments will sell better, even though they're more, more affordable, because each micro market is different. You know, for example, you're seeing lots of action near that 1.5 million mark because of, uh, you know, stamp duty and people wanting to make particular moves there. You're seeing totally different moves at the top end of price. Uh, top end of town because there's a lot of uh, you know wealthy buyers who are not actually affected by interest rates who might be you know financing a very small or no proportion of their deals, right? So, you know, to your original comment at Sydney, it would not surprise me if Sydney continues to go up in perpetuity. In fact, I expect that to do so, and that will mean things are less and less affordable over time, over generations, because house prices go up faster than wage growth, and what that means is. You know, a generation ago, you could save up, you know, for your first home purchased for four years and get that deposit and get in the ladder. And now that's 10 to 20 years and half of us get help from mum and dad. And in a generation, it'll be impossible for many people, unfortunately, to buy within Sydney without significant help or significant wealth. And I think that's sad. That's not what we want. We want more supply for our children and the next generation. But that is where Sydney is going in terms of the chronic undersupply relative number of people who want to live in Sydney. Yeah, it's a very, very important point, backing again to that component of supply, both new and for sale. And I'm not sure if there's been a clear answer to this one, John, but it's something that I love to just pick your brain on. Yeah. One thing that we did in terms of our research was realize that if we just simply looked at population and the stock on market, we realized there was two things. One is there was a 16.8% increase in population between 2010 and 2021. However, the houses for sale established online across all the internet was down 21.6% during that same <laughs> time period. And so just all data points aside, just a clear disconnect between established stock online versus how many people coming into the country. Totally. And so has there been any thought around not so much with a, like the new build area, because I don't think that will play as much of an impact as that established stock line moving back up, right? There's just so yeah. much more of that. Are there any, I guess, clear reasons that are maybe a little bit more easier to think of or easier to explain that are starting to show up as to why the stock has been channeling down from 2013 year on year on year and people just aren't bringing it to life to sell and transact in the levels they used to? Yeah. I mean, actually, this is something I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, because I think, you know, putting my domain hat on, one of the things we try and do is we want people to make great property decisions. We want people to live, you know, in the place that's right for them to live. Uh, whether it's a big house or a small house or some routine. And the trend you're talking about is you've actually seen housing allocation decisions become less efficient over time. For example, you know, uh, there are something like we estimate 11, 12 million rooms in Australia that are not used right now, right, where one or two people could stay. Why is that? Why would someone stay in a five-bedroom house you know, when they're empty nesters? And that's just very, very simple. We make it very difficult to transact property here in Australia. There is a relatively high cost to selling, you know, you, it, it takes time, it takes effort. You know, you, you need to pay a real estate agent commission and they really earn that commission, but it's not cheap, right? Uh, even though there is a capital gains benefit, when you are buying, it really hits you. Depending on what state you are, there's stamp duty, you know? And so what that has the effect of being, you're paying, you know, five, five, 6% stamp duty, you know, in Sydney is you only sell, you only move if you absolutely have to. You only sell a movie, you absolutely have to. And we've seen some funky things around this. The average number of people in a house has dropped from 2.55 to 2.47. And that may not seem like a lot, 
But that is hundreds of thousands of rooms that are, that are left empty as a result of this. And it's because of things such as the taxation regime around property. It's because of the difficulty in transacting. And right now it's because of the fear of, oh, if I actually leave my house, where can I find a place to rent that's affordable? And if I buy, I'm going to get hit with all these transactions, even though I can make some money you know, off selling my house. It just means the safer thing for many people is just to stay put. And so you see that continue of the last 10 years, and that's why you see you know, uh, it's just harder and harder to get a house, and there's less and less transactions happening. I think you've touched on the most important point that's missing in housing right now, and that's stock mobility, right? And everyone right now, in my opinion, is throwing the wrong solutions into the mix. <laughs> Everything is build-related or tax-the-investor-related or come up with new idea to ping one side of the party because the other party's upset and then, no, we'll take away this because they're now upset and it's this constant trying to please one half of the side and then once they're too upset on the other half, you come <laughs> back to them. And so what you've talked about is the most impactful area of real estate movement because there are over 10 million dwellings, right? So over 10 million dwellings means that's the biggest fish that's going to move the dial the most. Totally. You know, and I think it's kind of like, you know, someone going to a house and saying, hey, instead of improving the kitchen to make the biggest impact to my house, I'm just going to change the letterbox and just think that that's going to improve all my value and, and going to make such a big difference. But you touch on a very key point. And I think looking back at that stock mobility, that is what I think ends the boom. Like the boom doesn't end until stock mobility starts to really fly because what I do think is that, yes, we can catch up on building, but that's a year's delay. And by that time, prices would have risen a fair bit. We can change policy, but that too will ping one side and help another side. So some yin and yang effect will take place and supply yeah. will probably see more shocked. So I think there's that stock mobility piece that's going to be the biggest X factor, which is do a lot of people cash in? Do a lot of people decide to move? Do a lot yeah. of people decide to go, I want to downsize? generational demographic movements, this is a key part, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Arjun. I think given that there are you know, 10 million dwellings, given that only five or 600,000 of these turn over every year, and given that probably should be about a million, right? If you think about people who would want to move but aren't moving because of those transaction costs, if we can make it easy to move, we can make it easy to find the right place for them or move out of the place that's no longer right for them, that will go probably the biggest way in addressing this issue. I do think there are significant supply unlocks that we need to look at, just the sheer number of dwellings. You know, I'm very passionate about making it more easy for investors to pour money, build dwellings here. Uh, and I think we need it. We are predicted to grow faster than almost any other uh, developed country in the world over the next 30, 40 years. And that to me is exciting. That is a vote of confidence in our way of life here in Australia. It's amazing. But if we don't have houses, we're just going to have people, number one, just not show up. Or if they do shop, live on the outskirts or families living far away from the generations around them. And that's not the kind of Australia we necessarily want to be in. Yeah, it's such a, such a good point, my friend. And I guess uh, coming back to the forecast, I really want to yeah, touch yeah. on a couple more things on that report. So two things that come to mind, and this is such a, an important thing to share. Hobart has come back up yeah. into the mix of the forecasting for positive growth. And this is a point I really like to stick it home to all the investors, <laughs> researchers listening here. When they think a market has grown a lot, there's an immediate thought to say that that's now had its time. But Hobart seems to be coming up in the forecast as a gift that keeps on giving for property investors and, I guess, you know, just the greater Tasmania. But I think the key here is when you look at Hobart now resurging again after having a bit of a quiet down, what are some of the standouts for Hobart in particular that make this quite apparent? <laughs> 
Now you're testing my knowledge on Hobart in particular. Uh, Hobart is actually one of the places, or Tasmania is one of those places where I've never actually owned a property. Uh, I've owned a property in most other capital cities and got to them a bit. And I think the real point I'd say, Arjun, to your point is, hey, Arjun has been right about what's happened in most of these capital cities. Uh, that's pretty amazing. But don't take Arjun's word for it. Make up your own mind. Go to Hobart and feel the vibe. You know, and that's what I got to do, you know, over the course of my time in Adelaide and Perth and things like that. Just feel the energy, feel the vibrancy, get to know the tr- the human traffic, get to know what young people are doing, what migrants are doing. That'll help forge as whether you think there's long-term capital gains here. I just would say in Hobart really hurt a bit when it came to the downturn, the recent downturn. Canberra uh, actually took the biggest hit and then Hobart. And so in some ways, there's some lost ground to make up, which is why we're forecasting they're coming back, I think, 3 to 5%, which is second only to Sydney, you know, in our model. And so we're thinking that there is both uh, growth in apartments and housing, you know, in Hobart. And the reasons are pretty simple. You know, there is always the pull of a capital city. There's a lot of reasons to be in Hobart. There's good employment there. Tourism continues to grow there. We see the last year or two as an aberration in terms of, oh, okay, people are nervous. They're pulling back a little. But there are very logical reasons why Hobart and some of the other smaller capitals will continue to grow over time, particularly as places like Sydney and Melbourne get far too expensive. Yeah, good good points in terms of just making up some of that lost ground as well. And I think on this report, there's another couple of areas that I'd love to touch on. And it talks about the upward price pressures and the downward price pressures. And I wanted yeah. to call out two particular parts. So the hot topic on everyone's mind, just from a level of whether it be household budgets or comforts or sentiment, has been this shift in interest rates and that therefore impacts borrowing power. Yeah. Now, we've looked at this report and it talks about the borrowing power potential for change in a positive direction. Could you give some insights into what the team is forecasting there? Yeah, the borrowing power is one of those factors that both argues house prices to go up and house prices to go down. I'll explain what that means. Typically, interest rates mean that you have less borrowing power. So to be more specific, interest rates have gone up by 4%. Typically, that has meant that instead of borrowing seven and a half times your salary, you can borrow four to five times your borrowing power has gone down by 30, 40%. Therefore, all things being equal, uh, say you're putting down a 20% house deposit, if you can only borrow $800,000 rather than 1.2 or whatever it is, you can therefore buy a house that's $400,000 less than before, and that affects house prices because buyers are willing to to pay less for a house, right? So that's the classic effect of what's happened, and I would say that that continues to be the case today. That's, I would say that's probably the biggest single driver why house prices have gone down is because interest rates have given people less affordability as well as they made them feel less wealthy in terms of taking a big bet on buying a new house. But, 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 borrowing power has an argument in the opposite direction. In this case, because borrowing power is going down, people may feel some urgency to buy if they think interest rates will go up further. So you've seen some of that effect, right? You've also seen the, the, the notion of, of serviceability or the buffer. So during the seasons of low interest rates, there's this 3% buffer, which is if interest rates are 2%, you need to show that you can pay off an interest of 5%. That is, if the interest rates went up by 3%, you'd have to absorb that shock. Now that interest rates have gone up so much, have gone up you know, 4%, that buffer has gone down in many banks for, from 3% to 1%. So you have to show that you, the potential da- downside from here is not as bad uh, you know, in, in terms of what that is. And what that means is you actually now, with many banks, can borrow more than what you could have a few months ago because the serviceability buffer is 1% rather than 3%. So you've got all these wacky things going in different directions. The net effect of six months ago was house prices were forecast to go down. And what we are saying, actually, it's flipped. 
The net effect of all these things is we expect house prices to go up now uh, because all things being equal, even though people can borrow less than they could a year ago, the impact of a lower serviceability and the impact of that urgency effect to people wanting to get to the market is actually going to put upward pressure on prices more so than downwards. And then when you couple all that urgency that you've talked about with nothing online and low supply, exactly. it's straight away changing and we can see it firsthand. And so that's a good segment on the upwards price pressure in terms yeah. of what could occur from borrowing capacity shifts. And it does mean that there's some potential forecast that over the next sort of 12 or maybe 24 months, if the interest rate cycle starts to shift in the other direction too, so does that assessment rate. It starts to go back down following right. the interest rates with it. And if we're already seeing low supply in a high interest rate environment, when you start to have those interest rates come back, borrowing capacity return and the supply still low, that's another recipe to add to that upwards <laughs> price pressure that you've talked about. So there are just, just to touch on that and make things a bit more confusing. If and when that happens, what you talk about and, and what that is, is the RBA comes out and says, OK, we've done what we need to. We've tamed inflation. Interest rates are now going to go back down so we can get out of the mini recession that we have caused. Right. When that happens, we expect that you'll see supply flood back onto the market. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point. People will start going, hey, I feel like the times or this bad or uncertain time is, is behind me and that confidence and that stock mobility that's we right. talked about should therefore return. Which ironically in this whole thing, because supply doesn't lie, would put downward pressure on house prices. <laughs> so it's not even clear where this goes. This, this forecast is predicated on interest rates remaining fairly high and therefore supply remaining relatively low and therefore prices going up a little. Right? That's basically the net net you know, of the forecast model that Domain has put forward. But once inflation has been tamed enough that the RBA can reverse its interest rates, then supply will unlock. Who knows what is going to happen to house prices? We think they'll probably keep going up, but depends on that locus of supply. If supply goes up by 30 40%, again, uh, you might find that there's a lot of houses relative to buyers, and therefore prices actually flatten or go down. So the true answer is not what is happening, it's how much of each thing happens, exactly. right? that how much is going to be the driver. And, and the good news is for prospective investors or buyers listening in, you're going to be able to see these trends change, right? Sure. Listings, as we say, in supply data starts to show, starts to change. You'll see those things. So you're not going to be wondering if this new train station coming in is going to boom the suburb or not. You're not going to be wondering whether this wave of people coming in is going to do X or Y. Supply, as we always say, doesn't lie. And that's, that's a key part here. Now, Downwards pressure was the other side of the equation, uh, John, on this, on this review. And I think many people will find it quite pleasing, both for many families out there and the health of, I guess, just the financial system in Australia, is that distressed listings are still a very, very low proportion yeah. of yeah. the total amount of listings. And looking at that data, there's one thing I took out of it, and, and correct me if this isn't the right way to review it, but I felt that going back to 2018 and 17, where the distressed listings as a proportion were far higher even in an environment where interest rates weren't crazy high or anything that we've talked about that we feel is impacting like inflation yeah. wasn't crazy high. That to me shows that the, the only difference between then and now was the job market wasn't as healthy in 2018. Unemployment was definitely much higher in Australia in comparison to today. So does that maybe just also signal to potential researchers and readers of markets that cost of money is just one small part and what might be more important is actually our jobs the job market, because that clearly shows that in 1718, where distressed sales were higher, also the unemployment was a, a weaker period in comparison to now. Yeah, this distress number is nuts. It's nuts because it's very, if you had told me 12 months ago, the, the Reserve Bank is going to raise interest rates by 4%. 
you know, what is going to happen to stress listings? I would have said, like, that is a historically high fast rate of increases. We're going to see a lot of mortgage distress. And indeed, going back six, nine months ago, we expected, because there's the whole mortgage cliff or refinancing cliff we might talk about, when, you know, in February this year, there was, you know, a few months ago, a lot of people were going from fixed rates back to variable because they'd bought two years ago on a fixed rate plan. We expected to see a lot more supply of people going, oh, wow, I'm now paying 6% rather than 2% you know, on my mortgage, I cannot afford this, I'm going to sell. We expect to see a lot of that and we end up seeing very, very little. And the reality is it comes back to the point you're talking about. It is the resilient job market. It's that unemployment rate still remains at, you know, below 4% historical all-time lows. And the reality is nothing gets really real until you lose your job. I mean, it is disheartening for people like us and, and, and your listeners. Every month you get a letter from the bank saying, hey, you know, you're, you're, you were paying this, now you're paying this, right? That's distressing. But there's very few people who go from that, even when it happens 12 times, and go, oh my goodness, I need to sell my house. Because typically what will happen is, as long as you have your job, and as long as you're confident you'll keep your job or get another job, you go to the bank and say, hey, look, I'm a bit tight. I'm a bit tight. Can you give me a break? And what we're seeing is a lot of banks totally willing to play ball on that. Either by refinancing or saying, okay, don't pay for six months or something is because they don't want to go through the hassle of a distress sale and all that kind of stuff. It only gets real when people lose their job and the, the, the job market has been much more resilient than anyone thought, right? And so no one's losing their job, and so no one's actually selling because they're distressed. They might actually feel some distress. They might have to negotiate with the bank. But we're not seeing that the abundance of supply or people come to the market or, or prices dropping because a lot of people got to sell, which counterintuitively is meaning that the Reserve Bank has to keep raising interest rates because they're not seeing the impact they would expect to see in a raise of unemployment, right? And therefore... People still feel wealthy enough, and therefore companies can still put up prices and charge people for more because they have jobs. Uh, and as a result, we remain in this uncertainty where inflation is not under control. So it's both a good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, and I think that this is the, the power of one thing that you've talked on is actually something that we don't see in the charts. And this is where if anyone tuning into this is just going to rewind back to what John just shared through, there's a lot of human, I guess, behavior elements there and nothing to do with really the charts of what X interest rate up equals Y result. And this is where economists constantly get it wrong. <laughs> and so I'm talking about the greater economists that jump on and talk 20, 30, 40% declines. What you've touched on, John, is one of, one of the most important parts of housing that many forget. It plays a role in shelter, there's human behavior, there's totally. job loss confidence, there's job gain confidence, there's holding my job, hold the fort mentality. And so I think what this means is that the next time we go through, whether it's this or other data points in Australian housing, anyone tuning into this who just has a love for data, love for research, has to consider not just what the charts say, but almost go back to this motion of if it was me and I've got a job and I've got 10 things I spend my money on, three out of the 10 things is likely to be with rent or housing, right? In yeah. terms of the dollar proportion. And so human nature, as it's playing out right now, would suggest we will find ways to cut the seven <laughs> before we have to cut this three out of 10 because oh. it is shelter. It's the roof above our head. And whether it's not buying or owning a property, we've probably got to rent somewhere, right? And the rental market's not looking that pretty right now too for a prospective renter. So what does that mean? Everyone's adjusting, tightening, changing, and making sure that while they're in jobs, this is the core baby to hold, and hence why we're not seeing that behavioral shift, which is changing that stock mobility you've talked about. So, and this is where economists constantly get it wrong. Not all do, but some do, and the <laughs> ones that do get it wrong are purely driven by 
X percent equals Y result and forget that there's humans involved in this all. And we do have shelter as a core part of what housing's for. Totally. I mean, that's what makes behavioral economics so interesting, right? Uh, I think there's that phrase that economists have successfully predicted 10 out of the last five recessions. Uh, we will constantly get it wrong. And, and in domain, we felt actually responsibility to put a forecast out there because we've accessed such amazing data, you know, not just kind of what's happening in housing, but also what people are doing online. And we can put that together in some funky models, do some regression analysis and put forward something that will hopefully educate people, even though we know we'll be wrong. We'll just find out how wrong we are in 12 months' time. We can help people people's, you know, build their education, make wiser decisions, uh, and we hope people can really benefit from it. I love that humble approach, John. Now, in terms of people benefiting from it, uh, investors, buyers, homeowners, they're always on your app, and they're always looking out for new things, wanting to get a better experience, yeah. and currently also just finding ways to be better and smarter with their buying. Right. And there is a lot of stuff in the pipeline. I know the world of AI has been interesting right now. Almost every boardroom <laughs> meeting lights up. The old AI drops out in a boardroom meeting or someone's post <laughs> has the word AI in it. Now talk to me, what's, what's the AI world doing in, in domain and what's the future look like for people who might be home searching, selling and considering it as a, as a prospective buyer or seller? Oh, thanks, Arjun. Yeah, I, look, AI is super exciting. Uh, I'm very, very excited to see the impact of it. Uh, we've been working on AI-related things for some years, and I think the way to think about uh, what we're trying to do with AI is improve how easy it is to find your dream home. Um, for example, let's take Google Maps, so a product that I worked on when I was at Google uh, you know, uh, a few years ago. Think how the map changed from 15 years ago to now. Right? Back in the day, you'd say, where do you want to go? I want to type in this address. It would say, great, here's the address, here's some directions to get there. Again, extremely useful, much better than looking up a street directory. But think about how you interact with Google Maps now. Sometimes you put an address and you want directions, but typically you're looking for something, and you might be looking for something just very general, like a restaurant, you know, or like, you know, something fun to do. And what the map does is try and bridge your intent with what is an outcome, even the outcome you might, might be looking for. And it, does not, it doesn't do that by saying, okay, you look at a restaurant, here's a list of all the restaurants ranked by distance. It'll try and infer from your preferences, your behavior, what you've searched for in the past, what kind of restaurant might be the right one for you. And it will serve that up to you. And in Google Maps, it will now even serve that to you before you even type in the word restaurant. It'll <laughs> bring out points of interest, and part of that is advertising fuels, right? But like, it'll, it'll bring out points of interest, so you're going, oh, I actually wasn't looking for a restaurant, but now that you think about it, I'd love to try that restaurant. And that to me is the way to think about uh, what Domain is trying to, how to try and improve the secret experience, right? In the beginning or right now, we're a, we're a great search portal. You put in parameters, you put in an address, or you put in a location with number of bedrooms, a price range, and we will serve to you a bunch of really relevant results in a really beautiful way. But to me, what all great apps are trying to do is move from the reactive, hey, tell us what you want and we'll give it to you, to the proactive, let us tell you what we think you would like based on your behavior before you even ask for it. And so what you're gonna see is a more beautiful map experience. You know, us trying to, to serve up the houses you might be looking for, or maybe not looking for an apartment that's off the plan, but that might be the best thing for you. And the whole idea is we can do that because, you know, if particularly if you've used the app for a while, we know from your behavior what you would like, we know what people like you are looking for, and we can serve that to a way to you that's helpful and accompany that with, uh, you know, kind of like trying to be a mini buyer's agent, you know, accompany with information about the suburb that we're suggesting and some of the things you might like and points of interest. We're trying to do this a way that's very, very simple, very, very clean, so it's just as fast to find what you want, but really more educational and fun along the way. That sounds like a lot of fun, and I think the main thing is giving people what they want and not having people have to come to you for everything that they are trying to find, and that's very powerful. It kind of reminds me of the old uh, 
jokes we'd be having around when people would talk about their phone listening to them or their phone oh, kind of hearing God. them out. And then here's my brother. I turn around and he's just like, pay off my mortgage. Give me a million dollars. Give me a million dollars. Talking to his phone, like just trying to say, hey, look, AI is going to solve everything. Watch it. I'm going to tell my phone. It's going to pop up some really cool, crazy things here. Uh, it's, it's always good fun <laughs> laughing about how what you want, it just shows up. And uh, that to me is the world of convenience. And that's what we want in today's world. And I think that's why we exist as well as, as a buyer's agency. People just like in terms of the world of cook at home versus eat out. It's, it's that aspect of I can cook at home, but how good is it to just walk down the road and, and get something at high quality served to me, fresh, ready to go, didn't have to wash the dishes, didn't have to do all that. And that basic concept there is now coming to everything. And I think that's going yeah, to be yeah. what's exciting for consumers ahead. Now, uh, John, investors, buyers, sellers, they're all part of the audience. Yeah. But a lot of people who tune into this podcast are actually fellow industry participants, people who are sales agents, principals yeah. of agencies. Awesome. We work closely with them. Uh, we do that to help our buyers and clients. Now, when it comes to what's in it for sales agents in the future, what are some of the exciting things in store that Domain's got in the pipeline? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, to uh, the real estate agents look out there, I just want to say thank you. Uh, many of you are, are partners with Domain, uh, and we're very, very grateful for that. And you recommend Domain to your customers, to people trying to sell a house. And thank you for building this industry. You know, despite the challenges we spoke about in terms of, you know, making a transaction, real estate agents are the one to make that difficult process, that difficult, stressful, scary process of selling or buying a, uh, of a house happening. And, and that's why I love this industry. My dad was a real estate agent, you know, for some of his career, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the profession. You know, at Domain, we consider it our mission to inspire confidence uh, in people's property decisions. And we want that to be true, not just for mum and dads, buyers and sellers, but for real estate agents. So what, what are real estate agents trying to do? Great real estate agents are trying to build a brand. They're trying to get to know that locale. And a lot of the things that my team work on are about improving the branding for real estate agents. So people can know, oh, wow, this particular agent has sold this many houses. That you build your brand in your local area, that people are seeing you again, again, your name you know, in the app, your brand in the app. So people associate you with quality, with, oh, when it comes to sell a house, I want to speak to this person and see if they can help me. The other thing we're really trying to do is, for all the parts of being a real estate agent, how do we make it better? Right? So we have a, a product called Price Finder. And what that does is it's got uh, information on almost every house in Australia. You know, old photos and when it was renovated and, and previous history. Uh, and that's a program that real estate agents can use. And it creates like a beautiful PDF uh, where when they are going and saying, hey, look, you think of selling a house. Here's five houses that have sold in the last 12 months that are similar. And here's what they went for. And here's why I think it's your house is worth this much. That real estate agents at the click of a button. They have to go researching for time and time. They click a button that produces a PDF with their logo, with their name, uh, you know, for, for their customer. You know, we, we have a product called Real-Time Agent that's DocuSign. You know, there's all the paper you need to sign when you're trying to close a house. And we can now do that on an iPad any time of the day. You know, and that's trying to make, again, a real estate agent more effective. They can run their office from their car, you know, if they need to. And the, the one I'm most excited about right now is, is, a, is a product called LeadScope. And this particular product helps real estate agents find their next house that will think they'll sell. So it integrates with their CRM, their database of customers, and it basically assigns each of them a probability score of how likely that house is to sell in the next 12 months. And so that means when you're a real estate agent, you think, oh, who should I call today? Who should I drop a line to, you know, just check in with? 
it basically helps you use your time more efficiently by prioritizing who is very likely to sell the next 12 months on a scale of zero to 100. And it's pretty accurate because it's not just you know using publicly available data, it's using all the information domain has about what people are searching for, what people at that address are doing. Uh, and, and it packages the way that's privacy constrained and helps people make better decisions about where to prospect. So we're really passionate about giving real estate agents more time to either spend in the business or with their families. Uh, and these are the things that the two sides of domain really helping look after buyers and seekers and mums and dads and investors and helping real estate agents be more efficient. It's the uh, decade of efficiency ahead, I feel. And then I think <laughs> from a perspective of whether it be sales agents or prospective buyers and sellers, I'm excited about what's in the pipeline, my friend. And thank you so much for today as well. Going through the house price forecast for next year, the picture is definitely much more exciting for people than it is, you know, I guess the whole decline and, and grim forecast that happened from ah, last year. And true. I feel what's clearly here to stay is the Australian consistency and stability in both our financial systems as well as our property systems and the desire of people to move here and live in Australia. What an amazing country. The migration statistics are showing that. And as you said, it's very exciting, but also pretty grateful to be uh, planted here in Sydney and in Australia in particular. So, mate, thank yeah. you, John. Appreciate it. Thanks, Arjun. Thanks for your time. Uh, it's great to be on the show. And uh, again, thanks to all of you out there for helping make this uh, profession what it is. Uh, we're very indebted to you, Paul.